Well, good morning. Go ahead and uh, have a seat as we uh, open in prayer. Father, we're grateful for an opportunity this morning to gather together and, uh, and to uh, consider how your sovereignty intersects with um, world history and, uh, and how you are accomplishing your purposes and plans uh, in the midst of uh, all of the events of world history. And so pray that you would help us as we uh, consider this, uh, this period of time that we're going to be talking about today, what is uh, probably um, a topic that people have a lot of strong opinions about, but not much understanding of. And so pray that you would help us to have greater humility and understanding as we approach this, and uh, that you would just bless us, not only here in, uh, in Theological Quibbing, but as we move forward uh, into the service as well. And so we love you, and we're grateful for your love for us, and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. All year we are talking about church history, and at this point we're in the Middle Ages. We've kind of moved from the early church and we're now in the Middle Ages, and we've discussed the growth of this concept called the Holy Roman Empire. We've talked about the schism between the East and uh, the West that results in these two separate branches of the church, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And then last week, uh, we talked a little bit about what life was like and uh, some of the uh, theological advancements in the medieval period, which is uh, uh, somewhat unhelpfully called the Dark Ages because it's not actually a period of darkness. There's actually a whole lot of, uh, of advancement and, uh, and intellectual growth and so forth that happens in that period of time. But we talked about that last week. And, uh, and then today we want to discuss what is generally considered a stain on church history. It's probably the most criticized and yet I would say one of the least understood events in church history and that is the Crusades. So we'll start by talking about kind of what is the modern perception of the Crusades uh, and then we'll uh, give some context and facts about the Crusades themselves followed by a consideration of why there is a bit of modern uh, misunderstanding or misperception around the Crusades, and then we'll discuss how we should think of the Crusades uh, today. So that's what we're going to do. By the way, we, we probably won't have time to do Q&A today, so if you have any questions, uh, just uh, go ahead and uh, send us an email or come and chat with us afterwards, and we'd love to help. But let's begin with the modern perception. When people think of the Crusades today, what do they think of? So I want to begin with a hypothetical, all right? I want you to imagine I want you to imagine that someone held a gun to your head and, uh, and they handed you a piece of paper and on that piece of paper it said the Crusades were, and then it had two options, good or bad. And you were told you have to circle one or they're going to do what people do when they put a gun to your head, all right? So what would you do? All right, well, a few people might circle good, but I would think the, most, uh, the, the majority of us would be uh, inclined to circle the word bad. By the way, I think the correct answer is to Krav Maga the gun out and uh, say that's a false dichotomy. I don't have to choose one of those. But if your average Christian is going to uh, circle bad, how much more is the pagan world going to do that? How much more are those who are not operating from a biblical worldview going to be willing uh, to do that? Consider the words of Steve Runciman. He's a historian whose work on the Crusades is considered one of the most influential modern treatments. A lot of what we think of the Crusades today, especially in the academy, uh, especially in uh, elite universities and so forth, is from uh, Stephen Runciman's work in the early 1950s. He said the Holy War itself 
was nothing more than one long, than a long act of intolerance in the name of God, which is the sin against the Holy Ghost. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, that's not actually what the sin against the Holy Ghost is, but he's a historian, he's not a theologian, so we'll forgive him for that. But he also wrote, there was never a greater crime against humanity than the Fourth Crusade. Think about that for a second. There was never a greater crime against humanity than the Fourth Crusade. Now, that's quite an opinion. What makes that an even more striking opinion, and in, in my mind, a silly opinion, was that it was written just a few years after the Holocaust was discovered. So with the systemic extermination of millions of Jews fresh on the collective world mind, Runciman says, nope, the Crusades were at least as bad, if not worse. Now, Runciman is British, so he, uh, we would expect him to be a bit cranky, but even here in America, that sentiment, that sort of understanding of the Crusades has caught on. In fact, in 1999, the New York Times compared the Crusades to Hitler's atrocities or to other acts of genocide throughout world history. And this is, again, this is the modern assessment of the Crusades. If you walk down the street this afternoon, if you surveyed people family feud style regarding the Crusades, you would get a lot of terms like evil, intolerant, and unjust. And so summarizing this prevailing cultural sentiment, which he disagrees with, by the way, historian Rodney Stark writes, most people assume that during the Crusades, an expansionist, imperialistic Christendom brutalized, looted, and colonized a tolerant and peaceful Islam. And again, this is the dominant view in universities and history books and even in many churches, but is that actually accurate? To answer that, we need to know something about the Crusades themselves. So what were the Crusades? Well, defining them is uh, notoriously difficult for a couple of reasons, namely because some Crusades don't seem to fit the general pattern. So if you have a definition and then something doesn't fit within it, it kind of makes it difficult. For instance, there was what was called a people's crusade at one point, which was filled not mostly with knights, but with just average Joes. It's kind of like that scene in Forrest Gump. He starts running and what happens? People just line up behind him and they keep kind of running along with him. And that's what happened in the, uh, the People's Crusade. This one guy, he started walking from Europe to the Holy Lands. And then when others asked, what you doing? He said, I'm going on crusade. So they said, we don't have anything better to do. No one's invented Netflix yet. Our feudal lords are real pain. And so can we come along? And he said, sure. And that was the People's Crusade. And they got slaughtered pretty much. There was also what was called a children's crusade, which sounds super cute, right? Each summer you have VBS, then you have a children's crusade, until you realize what it actually is, which is just a bunch of kids marching off to war with no weapons and no training. It would be like if our youth got super fired up about the border situation tonight, and they said, we're going to take matters in our own hand. They just started marching down to Mexico. We'll figure it out. So not all the crusades fit the same pattern. That's what makes uh, defining it difficult. But in general, the crusades were a series of military expeditions to recover the Holy Lands from the Muslims from 1096 to 1291. Though there is actually sporadic crusading activity continued all the way through the 15th century into the early 16th century. But in general, the Crusades were a series of military expeditions to, cover, to recover the Holy Lands from the Muslims from about 1096 to 1291. So during this time, there was rather a constant flow of pilgrim warriors, crusaders, from Europe to the Holy Lands. 
But there are generally five main crusades that historians discuss, five main crusades. So we'll look at each of those in turn. But first, let's kind of get the background. Let's set the stage. And so we've previously discussed before how after Constantine's death, in fact, even during Constantine's time, he kind of divides the empire, but it's certainly after his death, the empire is going to be split into east and west. Rome is going to be the center of the west. Constantinople is going to be the center of the east. Uh, this is going to be known as the Byzantine Empire. And so for centuries, those two cities are going to battle for primacy in the church. But for various reasons, we've talked about before in 1054, there was a decisive split between those two cities and a decisive split in the church that forms these two branches. Now, around this time that East and West are formally splitting into Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, around this exact same time that this is occurring, there is a new threat that's looming in the East, namely the Muslim Turks. The Muslim Turks had conquered Armenia, they had conquered Syria, they had conquered Palestine, all of which were previously a part of the Byzantine Empire. You can see that on the map there. Then in 1071, the emperor, the Byzantine emperor, was captured in battle against the Turks. Within a few years, citizens of Constantinople could look across the water. It's called the Bosphorus, the strait there uh, at Constantinople. They could look across the water and they could see the land of the Turks, which is called the Seljuk Sultanate on the map in, uh, in your notes there. And so you can see how this, uh, this Turkish empire has kind of uh, encroached upon the Byzantine empire. And so in 1095, the new emperor, whose name was Alexius I, he raised an army to defend against the Islamic threat. But he realized he lacked uh, sufficient troops and so he appeals actually to the papacy. He appeals to the papacy. So in November of 1095, Pope Urban II preached a message at uh, the Council of Clermont in what is today France. And this is one of the most important speeches of all time. Think of, uh, of uh, like Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream or uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or Dwight Schrute's Salesman of the Year speech or something like that. Pope Urban's appeal at Clermont ranks right up there in regards to the, uh, the historical influence that it exerts. Unfortunately, there's no official version of that particular speech, but rather a number of different versions that have survived. One recorded by a guy named Balderick of Dole partly reads... Uh, under Jesus Christ, our leader, may you struggle for your Jerusalem in Christian battle line, that most invincible line, even more successfully than did the sons of Jacob of old. Struggle that you may assail and drive out the Turks, more execrable than the Jebusites who are in this land. And may you deem it a beautiful thing to die for Christ in that city in which he died for us. But if it befall you to die this side of it, be sure to have died on the way is of equal value if Christ shall find you in his army. Now that was all the background, but there's another historical uh, factor that we need to consider if we want to understand what's going on in the Crusades, and that is trouble in Jerusalem. So we've got to back up to understand that. So in the 7th century, Jerusalem falls to Islamic control. Carl talked about that a few weeks back. However, although the city was under uh, Muslim control for hundreds of years, it was not the same group of Muslims that entire time. In fact, it was regularly switching hands as Islam was divided among various tribal groups. And so Islam wasn't a very unified religion. So there were various tribal groups. There's Sunnis, there's Shiites, there's various families and so forth. And so as Jerusalem was passed down, 
down from uh, family to family or tribe to tribe or group to group or whatever it might be, the treatment of Christians within that area is going to change. And so the treatment of Christians in Jerusalem depended on which group was in power at the time. Sometimes they were just slaughtered. Sometimes they were massacred. But other groups were more tolerant of the existence of Christians and Jews within Jerusalem. However, when we talk about tolerance, that some groups were more tolerant, we need to understand tolerance needs to be understood in Middle Ages, Middle Eastern terms, not in our contemporary terms. So what they would call tolerance then, we would call persecution today. So when Christians in Jerusalem weren't being killed, when they weren't being slaughtered, here are some examples of how they were treated. Again, this is Middle Eastern, Middle Age tolerance. So Christians couldn't build houses. I'm sorry, they couldn't build churches. Uh, They couldn't proselytize. They couldn't purchase property. They couldn't pray. They couldn't read, (coughs) excuse me, they couldn't read scripture aloud. You couldn't even do that in your own home, lest a Muslim overhear you and be enticed towards Christianity. They couldn't ride horses. They had to wear separate clothing to distinguish them from Muslims. They couldn't be armed and they were taxed severely. So anyway, for most or or for much of the seventh through the 11th centuries, these were the conditions for Christians in the quote, holy lands. Christians were allowed to live in the area by and large, but they were allowed to live there as an oppressed minority. But then the Turks come. And the Turks were Muslims, but they weren't Arabic. They weren't Arabs. And so they conquered Palestine, and they weren't very tolerant of Christians even by medieval standards. So in Urban II's speech at Clermont, a guy named Robert the Monk records him saying, they, that is the Turks, have completely destroyed some of God's churches, and they have converted others to their uses of their own cult. By the way, this is going to be a little bit graphic because you have to understand the context here. They ruin altars with filth and defilement. They circumcise Christians and smear the blood from the circumcision over the altars and throw it into the baptismal fonts. They are pleased to kill others by cutting open their bellies, extracting the end of their intestines and tying it to a stake. Then with flogging, they drive their victims around the stake until when their viscera have spilled out, they fall dead on the ground. They tie others again to stakes and shoot arrows at them. They seize others, uh, seize others, stretch out their necks and try to see whether they can cut off their heads with a single blow of a naked sword. And what shall I say about the shocking rape of women? Other accounts from the time said that the Turks would cut off the supply of water so that Christians were forced to drink water either from dead animals or to drink their own urine. There were also accounts of a priest who had his head cut off during mass men who were forced to urinate into the baptismal fonts, and even the command for Christian men of all ages to commit acts of sodomy. Now, that could be pastoral hyperbole. That could be a degree of propaganda. We don't know if all. We don't even know if most of that actually happened. But what we do know is, as you can imagine, the crowd was fired up. They were fired up and they began shouting, Deus volt, Deus volt, Deus volt, which means God wills it, God wills wills it. Thus the first crusade was born. Though to be fair, at the time it wasn't called a crusade. It wasn't actually called a crusade until about a hundred years later. Anyone know why it was eventually called that? Well, because the word crusade is from the Latin cruce signati, right? Which means those signed by the cross. Because those who responded, they would tear strips of cloth into the shape of a cross and then they would affix it to their clothing, 
kind of like an affliction shirt that you might get at the buckle or something like that. So that was the historic context for the first crusades. Let's talk a little bit about the motivation of the crusaders. So we've talked a little bit before about the singular influence of Augustine on Western church history and theology and tradition. And one of the things that he does is he articulates this theory of just warfare that has survived uh, to today. We have an entire lecture from, uh, from last year on just war, so go back and listen to that. But basically, it laid out the criteria by which a, a war might be considered just or right or good. And it laid out a number of criteria or qualifications, including just cause and a competent authority and so forth. I think there were about eight of those. Now, we can debate which qualifications, if you go back and listen to the just war treatment, we can debate which qualifications the Crusades met. Some probably met some, uh, some uh, didn't. But the point is that almost all medieval Christians believed that it was just. As a historian Derek Lomax notes, the popes, like most Christians, believed war against the Muslims to be justified, partly because the latter had usurped by force lands which once belonged to Christians, and partly because they abused the Christians over whom they ruled. So given the prominence of just cause as being one of the requirements for just warfare, let's consider the causes of the crusaders, or at least what we can surmise from, uh, from the historical record. So in general, there are four main motivations, four main factors emphasized in calling for the crusades, four main desires on the minds of the crusaders. First was the aforementioned immoral actions by the Muslims, the atrocities that the Muslims committed against uh, Christians, not only against Christians, but even against Jews and even against fellow Muslims. So for many crusaders, the impetus for war was not necessarily hatred of Muslims, but rather love of their brothers and sisters who were allegedly being mistreated, tortured, slaughtered, and so forth. So that was the first motivation. The second motivation was the promotion of this idea of Christendom, which we've talked about before. As Pope Urban was, uh, was reported to have said, let the deeds of your ancestors move you and incite your minds to manly achievements. The glory and great greatness of King uh, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, and his son, Louis, and of your uh, other kings who have destroyed the kingdoms of the pagans and extended in these lands the territory of the holy church. So the goal uh, of the crusaders was to repossess land that was taken from them. By the way, whether we agree with it or not, this does distinguish the crusades from early Muslim imperialism and certainly from jihad today, whereas Islam was using the sword uh, to expand into new territories that they didn't previously hold, the crusades were an attempt to regain land that was previously possessed. And so that was the second motivation. The third motivation was the prominence in medieval theology of, this, uh, of the idea of sacred things and places. So if we really want to understand the Crusades in their historic context, we need to think like a middle-ager, right? Not like a 40-year-old, but rather like someone who lived in the medieval uh, period. And so part of that worldview included this theological conviction that certain places and certain things were sacred. That's why it was called the Holy Land. Now, from the, our perspective today, that's an unbiblical idea. We read the New Testament and we see that it dismantles the idea of holy lands, but from a medieval perspective, that wasn't the case. In fact, Jerusalem was considered sacred not only in Judaism and in Christianity, but even in Islam. 
It's the third most sacred city in Islam behind Mecca and Medina because Jerusalem is where Muhammad was said to have made his night journey with the angel Gabriel. It's where, according to Islamic prophecy, the resurrection will occur and so forth. So Jerusalem is considered a sacred city in multiple sort of religions. But anyway, because Jerusalem was considered sacred in medieval Christianity, pilgrimages were common. So originally, the church was opposed to pilgrimages. If you read the early church, uh, for example, guys like Jerome, who lived in Bethlehem, he thought pilgrimages were of no consequence. And then you read guys like uh, Augustine and uh, and John Chrysostom and uh, and other church fathers, they denounce, they mock the practice of pilgrimages because of this New Testament idea that those lands aren't actually inherently more holy or more sacred or whatever it might be. But nonetheless, thousands of men and women flocked to Jerusalem uh, in the Middle Ages such that an entire industry built up around it. So Jerusalem by the early Middle Ages was kind of like Disney World today. It's this constant caravan of of people coming in, willing to spend their life savings just to wait in line and sweat, right? Now, why is all of this important for us to understand? Well, because anytime Jerusalem was in Muslim hands, pilgrimages were much more difficult, if not impossible. And not only were places considered sacred, but things as well. Zach talked about that last week with the growth of an entire industry of what are called relics, these sacred objects somehow connected uh, to the gospel or somehow connected to the apostles or Jesus himself or whatever it might be. So remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? You remember that, uh, that particular movie? What are they looking for in that? They're looking for a relic. They're looking for the, the, the chalice of Christ, right? Uh, and choose wisely because otherwise it'll kill you. So they're looking for the Holy Grail. And who is it that's guarding it? A crusader knight, right? And so, uh, this, so relics played a huge role in the crusades. For instance, at one point, a crusader was said to have received a, quote, vision, which were very common in the crusades. And his vision said that if he digs in a particular place, he will find the actual lance that was used to pierce Christ's side. So he goes and he digs in this particular place and he has a crowd around him. And sure enough, what does he find? He finds a lance head which he may have buried himself to incite his own troops to, uh, to fight, but it works. And so he finds it and it inspires his men and they win this huge victory. And then when that, that lance head is later captured by the Muslims, it's a huge blow. It's actually one of the mo- uh, motivating major selling, uh, selling points for future crusades. But in addition to the Holy Lance, there's mention of the Crusades, uh, in the Crusades, of the whip that's used on Jesus. They said that they found that. The crown of thorns, nails from the cross, pieces of the cross. And this is really sick. Even the head of John the Baptist, that was a relic that was associated. So the Crusades are, in, in part, an attempt to protect these sacred lands and sacred objects, all right? We have to remember, this is during a time of feudalism. The medieval period is a time of feudalism whereby a lord owns a portion of land and his vassals work for him to serve and to protect that land. So in the minds of many uh, medieval Christians, of medieval Europeans, this sacred space and these sacred objects, the holy lands and the relics were owned by Christ. He's the feudal lord of the holy lands. But these things had been stolen by thieves, and so it was therefore their responsibility, according to the medieval code, the medieval knightly code. What do we call that? Anybody remember the name of the term? Chivalry. 
It was according to their code of chivalry. It was therefore their responsibility, according to their medieval code, to fight for Christ's honor, to fight for his possessions. So the Crusades for them wasn't about land, it was about holy land. Again, not from our perspective, but to them. If we miss that, we won't even begin to understand the topic. So this medieval view of sacred space and sacred things drove the Crusaders, as did the promise of the forgiveness of sins. That's a fourth primary motivation. So last week we talked about medieval theology and the idea of penance in the Roman Catholic Church. Penance is an act of contrition whereby a person proves that they're sorry for their sin by doing acts that remind them, that remind their hearts of what is good. So let's camp out here for a second because again, this is really important if you want to understand the Crusades. So in Roman Catholic theology, all of the stain of sin is washed away when? Anybody know? You said the word washed away, what do you think of? In baptism, right? But what happens then if you sin after baptism? Well, that's not washed away. And so you somehow have to pay it off. And you have basically two options to pay it off. You have purgatory and you have penance. And by doing penance, you can pay it forward and you earn time out of purgatory. So like early parole, time off for good behavior, right? So what does this have to do with the Crusades? Well, pilgrimages were originally a form of penance. So if you sinned, you could journey to Jerusalem, you could get some Pope bucks, and those would be accredited to your account, and you get a little bit of time off of purgatory. So it's a big deal if all of a sudden you can't go. You can't go to Jerusalem because the Muslims have killed all the Christians or the Muslims have shut all the gates or whatever it might be. So the Pope does something really interesting at this time. He promises forgiveness for those who go on crusade even if they don't make it to Jerusalem. In other words, simply attempting the journey is counted as, pilgrim, uh, as a pilgrimage. It's counted as penance, as forgiveness. As Urban II said, I say it to those who are present. I command it be said to those who are absent. Christ commands it. All who go thither, I love that word, thither. Sounds like he has a list. All who go thither and lose their lives, being on the road or on the sea or in the fight against the pagans will be granted immediate forgiveness of their sins. This I grant to all who will march by virtue of the great gift which God has given me. And so in other words, the crusaders were driven by multiple desires. Partly they were motivated by love for neighbor. They'd heard of the atrocities that were committed against their brethren overseas. They were moved to help. They were partly moved by this feudal responsibility and chivalry and so forth, partly by religious desire for absolution that the Pope had attached the Crusades, and then partly motivated by some other sinful desires that we'll talk about uh, later. But that's the, uh, that's the beginning, that's the context. So the first Crusade begins with Pope Urban II's speech at Clermont in 1095. And after that, he begins to travel around on this sort of like preaching circuit uh, and, uh, and his uh, goal is to gather an army. And all in all, about 150,000 people responded. Of those 150,000, only about 40,000 of those were men. And not all of them were knights. In fact, a lot of them weren't. And they didn't all leave together. Some went early, some came later. Many didn't make the entire journey. This was one of the logistical problems that would beset all of the Crusades, all five of the Crusades. And that is a lack of organizational structure. As Thomas Madden, a, uh, a leading uh, crusade scholar, who I'll quote a few times here, uh, writes, he said, a, crusading, a crusade army was in effect a loosely organized mob of soldiers, clergy, servants, and followers headed in roughly the same direction for roughly the same purposes. But dis, uh, despite the lack of organization, the first crusade was a sweeping success for the crusaders. 
they managed to retake Antioch and Jerusalem, which were two of the best defended cities, not only in this area, but two of the best defended cities in the Western world. And they created a new kingdom in the middle of the, uh, the Middle East called the Kingdom of Jerusalem. For the first time in hundreds of years, the quote-unquote holy lands were back in the hands of quote-unquote Christians. By the way, this was also the period in which many of the crusading knight orders were established, such as the Knights Templar, if you've heard of them, who were like armed monks, or the Teutonic Knights, or the Hospitallers, which is like the worst knight uh, gang name ever. So they actually changed it to the Knights of Malta. You might have heard of them. They actually exist as a sovereign entity. Uh, Today, you can have a passport from the Knights of Malta. So as you can imagine, news of this sweeping, this unprecedented uh, success of the initial wave of the First Crusade stirred thousands more to come. There were some who were like, I wanna go, but I wanna kind of see how it goes first. And so uh, many more start coming, but by now, The Turks kind of had some idea of what was going on. They were a little bit more ready and many of those who came later were slaughtered. And then back west, they realized that the newly established kingdom there in Jerusalem, the kingdom of Jerusalem, depended to a large degree on this reality, this historical reality of Muslim disunity. They knew also that it was in big trouble if the Muslims ever actually unified, not to mention the fact that the Crusaders would need constant supplies of resources and personnel if it were to survive. Jerusalem is not on the coast. You may be familiar with this. It's not on the coast, and so you can't just simply sell a ship from, uh, from Europe uh, to Jerusalem. You have to sell it to the coast, and then you have to take it uh, through. And, uh, and so most of that area, though, was still controlled by Uh, the Muslims. And so then in 1144, the Christian stronghold at a place called Edessa was, uh, was captured by the Muslims. So crusaders who had up to this point assumed that permanent victory was kind of uh, assured by God, that this was God's army and God's land. And so God was going to protect them and give them victory. All of a sudden they're shocked because they lose for the first time. And meanwhile, Muslims who had kind of feared that maybe the Crusaders are too powerful. They were encouraged and they were reinforced. All of a sudden, they've won a victory. So on December 1st, 1145, Pope Eugenius III issued a papal bull, which launched what has come to be known as the Second Crusade, which was a huge failure. And momentum shifted even further to the Muslims. But something else was happening in the Islamic world of the time as well that would forever impact the history of the Crusades. As we just mentioned, one of the biggest factors that led to the early crusaders' victories was the fact of Muslim disunity. Not only do you have Sunnis and Shiites, but even within each group, there are various tribal families, and there's distrust, and there's jealousy, and so forth. In fact, in the Crusades, you have times where the crusaders had alliances with a particular Muslim group against other Muslims, or whatever it might be. Now that all, that disunity began to change with the rise of a guy named al-Malik al-Nasir Salah al-Din Yusuf, or as history has known him, Saladin. And Saladin was very ambitious. He once said, I think that when Allah grants me victory over the rest of Palestine, I will divide my territories, make a will stating my wishes, then set sail on the sea for their far off lands and pursue the Franks there so as to free the earth of anyone who did not believe in Allah or die in the attempt. So Saladin knew that in order to accomplish his goal, which is very clearly stated, his goal is to rid the earth of infidels. And in order to do that, he needed to unite the historically divided Muslims. 
So he began by unifying the various groups in Egypt and then in Syria. Egypt is always going to be this power base for resupplying the holy lands of, uh, of Muslim resources and personnel and, uh, and so forth. So he unifies the various groups in Egypt and in Syria. So uh, kind of uh, west and south and then north of the, uh, the kingdom of Jerusalem. And then he had uh, the strength that he needed because they were now unified to turn his attention to the holy lands. And the crusaders were no match for this unified force of Saladin's uh, army. And so Jerusalem fell in 1187. And suddenly the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem didn't include Jerusalem anymore. Now Christians in the Holy Lands had been appealing to the West for help for years. But Europe was embroiled in these petty internal disputes at the time. And so the pleas kind of had fallen on deaf ears for decades. But on the news of a particularly devastating battle at a place called Hatim and the subsequent loss of Christianity's most precious relic, again, that, uh, the lance that was alleged to have pierced Christ's side, and in light of the fact that the Muslims had now captured the holiest of the holy lands, Jerusalem itself, sleeping Europe got woke. And so in, on, uh, uh, in uh, October of 1187, Pope Gregory VIII issued this statement. He called for a seven-year truce for all of Europe. No more petty disputes. I want all of the knights to be free to go to the crusades and not have to worry about protecting their own lands or their own feudal lord or whatever it might be. And so a seven-year truce for all of Europe. It also called for all citizens whatsoever, all citizens to contribute to the crusades and they could do so in various ways, by fasting, by prayer, by alms, and also by repentance. It was assumed that the reason that Jerusalem was, uh, had fallen was because of the sin of the Christians, right? And so uh, kind of like in Israel's history, the reason that Israel would lose battles is because of unfaithfulness on the part of Israel. That was the same mindset in Christendom. And so it was assumed that Jerusalem fell because Christians weren't holy enough. And so only through purification and through penance could uh, Jerusalem be reclaimed. It also called for a general tax across Europe called the, the Saladin tithe. Think of how churches kind of talk about missions today, right? You have three options. You can go, you can pray, you can sin. That was kind of the medieval uh, crusade perspective. You could go on crusade, you could pray and do acts of penance and, and, and so forth for the crusade, or you can sin by paying for another to go in your stead. And this is probably the height of the crusading movement this particular period of time. If, if any of you have seen any of the Robin Hood movies, you're familiar with this particular crusade. You're familiar with the name uh, Richard the Lionheart, right? The King of England who presided over the wedding of Maid Miriam and Kevin Costner, right? Now, unlike the previous crusades, Richard's was largely successful. He didn't recapture uh, Jerusalem. In fact, he intentionally didn't recapture it because he knew he couldn't hold it because again, it's not a coastal city so he couldn't refortify it and uh, provide the resources. So he intentionally didn't uh, reconquer or retake uh, Jerusalem but he did capture the entire coast of the Holy Lands and he unified Christian divisions in the area and then he managed to broker a treaty with Saladin allowing Christians entry and exit from Jerusalem. So the Muslims would retain control of the city, but Christians were allowed in and out for the sake of pilgrimages. However, he wasn't able to stick around for too long. Anybody remember why? There's trouble brewing back at home. His brother, John, 
is trying to take his kingdom from him, right? Again, if you watch Robin Hood, that's all historical accurate, right? So he's plotting back uh, against him back at home. Uh, and so uh, Richard eventually had to leave, but he left with things in the Holy Lands much better than we ha- when he had arrived. Now, one other historical note regarding this third crusade that will be important for understanding the context of the fourth crusade was that during the third crusade, the Byzantine emperor, who's named Isaac II, he had actually made a treaty with Saladin. And his treaty with Saladin was not like Richard's where it just allows entry and exit into Jerusalem. His treaty with Saladin, the, the, again, the Byzantine emperor's treaty was that uh, he would impede and hamper the crusaders, right? That was his treaty. Why? Well, he made it for a few reasons, two of them that I'll mention. First, because he was tired of the crusaders tromping through his empire along the way and uh, eating up all of his food, causing a ruckus, but more importantly, because he was threatened by a guy named uh, Frederick of Barbarossa, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. And Frederick of Barbarossa was leading a crusade from Germany, but Emperor Isaac had a bit of an ego. He didn't like that Frederick was also called an emperor, and so he felt threatened by him. So he betrayed the crusaders, and that will further divide the tensions between the East and the West, resulting in the disastrous events of the Fourth Crusades. Now, because of uh, Richard's deal with Saladin, Jerusalem was open to Christian pilgrims, but it was still in Muslim hands, and that didn't sit well with Pope Innocent III. In fact, Pope Innocent III made it his overarching goal of his papacy to restore Christian control of the Holy Land. So he proclaimed a new crusade in 1198, but things went sour very, very quickly. Some of the early crusaders arrived in Venice, and they commissioned a fleet They commissioned a fleet to sail to the Holy Lands. So the Venetians set to work with the expectation that they would be paid when the ships were finished, right? In those days, there was no kind of prepaid option. The crusaders couldn't kind of give a deposit or something like that. Guys simply paid for things like food and passage whenever they arrived. And they couldn't RSVP, so they didn't really have any idea exactly how many crusaders are going to show up. There's no internet at that time. They don't really know who's gonna show up, and so they just guess. They kind of do a guesstimate. Unfortunately, not enough crusaders arrived in Venice, which meant they didn't have enough money to actually pay the Venetians. And so that was a problem. But the Venetians said, hey, no problem. You can do us a favor. We'll extend your payment deadline if you'll do us a favor. Well, what favor? Well, there's a little town called Zara. And it used to belong to us, but they rebelled a while back and we want it back. And so if you help us take it, we'll extend the deadline. And maybe if we extend the deadline, then more crusaders will show up and you'll have the money that you need. So the crusaders said, done. The only problem with this plan was that Zara was a Christian territory, all right? So the crusaders were subsequently excommunicated for attacking Christians, though they're later absolved by the Pope who realizes we actually need those crusaders to accomplish the crusade. And so they apologize and the Pope absolved them. And, uh, and so that was the case with Zara, but they still had a problem. Because the Zara incident didn't actually solve anything. It didn't cancel the debt. It just extended the amount of time. It just extended the deadline before they had to pay. They had assumed by the time they got back from Zara that more crusaders would have arrived in Venice so they could have the funds, but that didn't happen. And then their savior arrives in the form of a guy named Alexius Angelus. And he's a relative of the Byzantine emperor. And he says, the people of Constantinople love me. They want me to be their emperor. If only you'll get me there. The citizens will revolt in a coup. It'll be the best coup. And uh, they'll make me the new emperor. And when I'm the emperor, 
in return for your help, I'll pay off all your debts. I'll raise an army from the east that'll help you with the crusades and I will commit myself to helping you in that way. Now, this was a deal of a lifetime. Not only will they get their debts paid off, but they'll also get help with their crusade from the Byzantine emperor and they also get a chance to settle the score with the east. Remember how the Byzantine emperor previously had uh, betrayed the previous crusades by siding with Saladin? Well, that was fresh on these crusaders' minds, so they agreed, and they set off for Constantinople. Unfortunately, they get there and realize Alexius has really vastly over under, uh, overestimated his importance, and the people of Constantinople are not actually wanting to depose the emperor after all. So now the crusaders are in a bit of a pickle. All right, they're stuck there in Constantinople. They don't have the money to pay off their debts. And, uh, and so they don't have a way to get to uh, the, uh, the, the Holy Lands, but they're stuck there. And so thus began one of the greatest tragedies of the Crusades as the Crusaders eventually managed to sack Constantinople. What was the largest, the most fortified city perhaps in the entire world at the time, the seat of the Byzantine Empire and the heart of the Christian East. Unfortunately, Constantinople would never again regain its glory. It would eventually fall to the Muslims and be renamed Istanbul, which it is today. So here's what Pope Innocent III said about the incident in Constantinople. For they who were supposed to serve Christ rather than themselves, who should have used their swords against the infidel, have bathed their swords in the blood of Christians. They have not spared religion, nor age, nor sex, and have committed adultery and fornication in public, exposing matrons and even nuns to the filthiness of their troops." So not a good day in crusading history. That was in 1204. A decade later, utterly ashamed by the events of the Fourth Crusade, yet still desiring, again, this is his overarching purpose, is to uh, restore, recapture Jerusalem. So Innocent III proclaims a Fifth Crusade in November of 1215. And this was the first crusade that was going to be fully administered and fully managed by the church. Remember how we talked about one of the problems that beset all of the crusades was a lack of organization. And so they said, no more screw ups. The church is gonna make it happen personally. If you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. Unfortunately, they didn't do it right. And though the fifth crusade was repeatedly on the brink of massive success, it also ended up in humiliating failure. And there would never again be a, uh, another major crusade launched, though there would be a number of smaller and or informal campaigns for the next two centuries. For instance, Frederick II, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. He later managed to manufacture a 10-year truce with the Jerusalems, which gave Christians control of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Nazareth. The reason he did that is because he wanted to be crowned as king in Jerusalem, so it was a bit of an ego play. Uh, but in return, the Christians had to agree that they would leave the cities unfortified. So a 10-year truce, you gotta leave the cities unfortified. Guess what happens 10 years later? The truce ends, and the Muslims come and take the unfortified cities. Couldn't have seen that happen, right? So it's like a 10-year lease. That's all it was. Later, a guy named King Louis the IX led a crusade to Egypt to cut off the supply line, recognizing if you're ever going to actually conquer and hold Jerusalem, you have to deal with uh, Egypt. And so uh, he led a crusade down there, but that too was a disaster. And then in 1291, the last crusader strongholds fell in the Holy Lands and the Muslims destroyed all of the coastal fortifications so that Europeans would never again return. Now, interestingly, after the crushing defeats of multiple crusades, after the complete loss of the Holy Lands in 1291, you would think that Europe would be kind of like, I'm over it. 
right? But in reality, passion for crusades actually remained high for centuries. However, a few factors prevented any sort of major momentum or movement to that end. First was the fact that in this period of time, after 1291, you see this, uh, this drastic weakening of the papacy. So crusading always depended upon a strong papacy. However, it was during the 14th and 15th centuries that papal power was diminishing and the power of kings was increasing. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. That was the first factor. The second factor was a little something called the Black Death, the bubonic plague, which killed about one-third of the population of Europe. And then third, during this time, France actually became formal allies with the Ottoman Turks, an alliance that would actually last for centuries, as if you needed another reason to distrust the French, right? They're rude. They wear berets and they betray all of Christendom. Well, finally, a fourth factory, uh, factory factor that uh, prevented further crusades was something that occurred while Pope Leo X was actually attempting for the final time to launch a major crusade, and that was in 1517. That's a very significant year. Anyone know what happened in 1517? Yeah, uh, yeah that's right. Some German monk nailed a piece of paper to a church door in Wittenberg and the entire world was turned upside down. Now, interestingly, as a little historic side note, one of the factors that actually allowed the Reformation to begin to grow and to take root was the fact that the Pope was originally too preoccupied with calling forth a crusade to notice these events happening with this little uh, monk. And so uh, those are some of the reasons why, although crusading passion ran high, there was never again uh, another uh, attempt at a major crusade, at least that, uh, that was able to take root. So in a minute, we'll try to evaluate the crusades. But first, there are a few other things. I didn't know where to fit these in, so I just put them in this other section. A few other things you need to understand if you're going to really assess something what you want to do is you want to understand, understand that thing and not a caricature of that thing. That's the part of the problem with our culture. I think if you were to ask people in our culture, they would have a very strong opinion of the Crusades, but a very weak understanding of the Crusades, and that's a problem. We should have a strong understanding before we develop a strong uh, opinion of those things. So let's quickly look at three further facts that I couldn't fit elsewhere into the notes that are relevant to evaluate the Crusades. The first one is that many Crusaders committed vile acts of atrocities. That's true. That's an important fact that we have to recognize. As with just about any war, there were egregious brutalities carried out by some of the combatants on both sides. So it would be historically inaccurate to say that all of the crusaders engaged in these outrages, but it would be equally inaccurate to pr pretend as if they didn't happen at all. And they weren't just acts against Muslims, but against Jews and Christians as well. For instance, in 1096, a group of crusaders massacred all of the Jews in multiple towns on the way to the first crusade. Or other crusades attacked and killed Christians in cities like Zara and Constantinople, which we already talked about. There were accounts of rape, of murder, of even cannibalism in some contexts. And those are things that are obviously transculturally wicked. But in addition, there were thousands of other cases that might not have been immoral according to the standards of the day, but certainly would be a violation of the Geneva Convention today, such as the looting and slaughter of Muslims who surrendered when various cities were captured. Again, those were justified from a medieval cultural standard, but today we would consider those acts to be uh, immoral. So that's the first one, that many crusaders committed vile acts of atrocities. The second one, the crusades weren't just limited to the Holy Land. 
Technically, when we talk about the Crusades today, we mean holy wars aimed towards the recovery of the holy lands. However, that same crusading imagery or propaganda was applied to a few campaigns that weren't actually concentrated in the holy lands. For instance, the Reconquista, which, uh, which were a series of efforts to push back Islam from Spain. Those were also considered crusades. As early as 1123, the First Lateran Council declared that crusaders could either go to Jerusalem or they could go to Spain. By the way, do you know when the first Muslim outpost in Spain officially fell? It was actually the same year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, all right? In other words, the exact same year that the Reconquista is finished, the new world is discovered, and the spirit of Reconquista is uh, replaced by the spirit of conquistadors. That's for another time we'll talk about at some point. But another example of crusading at home includes efforts to suppress heresy in Europe. For instance, in France, there was a heresy called Catharism or Albigensianism, which was related to the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. It proclaimed the deity of Christ, but denied his humanity. And this sect was growing in France. So in March of 1208, Pope Innocent III urged a campaign against the Albigensians with all indulgences and privileges associated with crusades. And this campaign would last for about 20 years and that would later morph into the Inquisition, if you've heard of that. Now, one last important distinction to mention, and that is that the Muslims did not view the crusades as particularly problematic until relatively recently. So one month after 9-11, Bin Laden said this, this is a recurring war. The original crusades were brought by Richard from Britain, Louis from France, and Barbarossa from Germany. Today, the crusading countries rushed as soon as Bush raised the cross. They accepted the rule of the cross. So according to Islamic extremists, terrorism today is simply payback for the atrocities of the Crusades because bitterness has been stirring among uh, Muslims for hundreds of years. And that language has been parroted not only by terrorists, but even the president of the US. For instance, uh, Obama uh, once said that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be too quick to denounce ISIS since we had done the Crusades. A few thoughts about that. First, that's a logical fallacy. If you don't know what that is, you should maybe go open up your Amazon app, pre-order Zach's logic book. But second, we did not do the Crusades, right? Not we as individuals. I doubt anyone in this room is 500 years old, like an immortal or something like that. Even our grandparents, even our great-great-grandparents weren't born yet. Not we as Americans either, since this country didn't even exist. But third, this is just bad history. Bear in mind, the Crusades were initially a response to Islamic provocation and imperialism. The Crusades weren't originally about Christian imperialism, they were about a response to Islamic imperialism. But that one indispensable fact is all but ignored in contemporary discussions. For instance, in the BBC documentary on the Crusades, hosted by Terry Jones, one of the guys who uh, directed Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the Islamic world was depicted as a place of unity and peace before the Crusaders arrived, and they taught the Muslims how to make war. Again, this is simply historical revisionism. Regardless of what you think about the Crusades, and we'll get to that, they were in response to 400 years of constant armed Islamic expansion and immediate threats in the East. And so Thomas Madden says, this is what gave birth to the Crusades. They were not the brainchild of an ambitious pope or rapacious knights, but a response to more than four centuries of conquests in which Muslims had captured two-thirds of the old Christian world. At some point, Christianity as a faith and a culture had to defend itself or be subsumed by Islam. The Crusades were that defense. Now, furthermore, this is fascinating. For hundreds of years, the Crusades weren't a thing that Muslims even thought about as a concept. For hundreds of years, Muslims 
weren't bitter. They weren't angry about the Crusades. The 15th century, the 16th century, the 17th century, in fact, as late as the 17th century, the overwhelming majority of Muslims in the Holy Lands hadn't even heard of the Crusades. The term Harb al-Salib was only introduced into Arabic in the mid-19th century, and the first Arabic history of the Crusades wasn't written until 1899. Until the 18th and 19th centuries, in other words, hundreds of years after the last battle, the Crusades were just viewed by Muslims as normal battles. No different from thousands of other wars between Muslims and non-Muslims. For the most part, the Crusades were largely irrelevant in the Muslim world. Why? Because Islam was victorious. They didn't hold a grudge against Christians because Islam won. They retained control of the land. So why is it that radical Islamists and even U.S. presidents repeat this historical inaccuracy? Well, Madden writes, it's not the Crusades that have led to modern tensions between the Muslim Middle East and the West, but the artificial memory of the Crusades constructed by modern colonial powers and passed down by uh, Arab nationalists and Islamists. The medieval expeditions were stripped of every aspect of their age and dressed up instead in the tattered rags of 19th century imperialism. As such, they have become an icon for modern agendas that medieval Christians and Muslims could scarcely have understood, let alone condoned. So let's explore a a few of the reasons for the misperceptions that persist. By the way, we're going to probably go over about two or three minutes, but if you have to serve with the kids, probably should leave it uh, at 10. So we started out this morning by looking at the modern assessments of the Crusades, as Rodney Stark writes, most today kind of presume that the Crusades were about an expansionist, imperialistic Christendom that brutalized, looted, and colonized a tolerant and peaceful Islam. And yet we know, studying it, objectively, that's not true. So why does that myth persist? Why is there such a huge gap between cultural perception of the event and historical understanding of the event. Now, so I'll mention a few factors, one from the 1700s, one from the 1800s, and then a couple from the 1900s. First, what happened in the 1700s that significantly revised the way that the Crusades were viewed? Well, the Enlightenment. We'll spend an entire week on the Enlightenment this summer, so I won't go into much uh, detail here, except to say that many of the Enlightenment thinkers were driven by this severe anti-Catholic sentiment. So guys like Voltaire, He thought that the Catholic Church was simply a source of superstition and corruption. His goal was to destroy it, crush the infamy, he said. So he repictured the Crusades as simply wars of religious intolerance and power-hungry popes. And that was kind of the Enlightenment view that began to take on in uh, Western history. Fast forward 100 years, and you have a second factor that's changed the cultural perception of the Crusades, and that is Marxism. According to Marxism, it's all about the Benjamins, baby, right? It's all about money, right? All of history is driven, according to Marxism, by economic factors. So when Marxism views the Crusades, it asks, it doesn't ask, was money a factor? It asks, how was money a factor? It simply assumes that it must be. So viewed through these Marxist lens, the Crusades become about oppression. Europe was growing. Europe was running out of resources. They had to plunder the East. In other words, the Crusades were pitched as a prelude to colonialism in which the European nations plundered and exploited weaker nations. But that's historic uh, revisionism as well. In reality, the flow of money, well, it was not that the Europeans went to the Holy Lands, uh, extracted money and resources, and took them back to Europe. Instead, it was European resources that flowed into the Holy Lands. It's the exact backwards flow that we see against what, the, uh, what Marxism would 
say, but facts are inconvenient, and so that perception persists today. Now take those two factors and imagine that they're lenses. When viewed through the Enlightenment lenses, the Crusades must have been about power-hungry popes and religious intolerance. When viewed through Marxism, it had to be about greed and colonialism. There's no other explanation possible. And then that Western view, influenced by Marxism and the Enlightenment thought, then takes off in literature and in academia with thing like, uh, things like Sir Walter Scott's 19th century novel, The Talisman, which p- portrayed Islam as this tolerant and peaceful religion, crusaders as these brutish thugs. And then you have uh, Stephen Runciman in the, the mid-20th century, his three-volume history of the Crusades, which, uh, w- which, as we saw, said that the Crusades were kind of the worst uh, human atrocity of all time. So those presuppositions kind of explain why it is that we've inherited in a Western perspective this perception of the Crusades. Well, what about perceptions in the Islamic world? Well, three events really serve to solidify that misperception, explain why uh, 300 years ago no Muslims were bothered by the same events that many of them are going to resent today. And the first was the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. The dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and the partition of its lands following World War I. As long as Muslims are still controlling the overwhelming majority of the Ottoman Empire, they don't care about the Crusades because they're winning. But when the empire is dissolved as a result of World War I, all of a sudden there is this resentment that attaches to the Crusades. Second is the creation of the nation of Israel following World War II. And then third is colonialism in which Westerners, affected by these modern presuppositions that we've talked about, they arrive in these former uh, Muslim strongholds. They show up to Palestine, for example, uh, and they say, we want to apologize for what the Muslims said, for the Crusades. Well, what are the Crusades? Why are you apologizing for them? Well, let me tell you. It's kind of like modern race relations in in the U.S., right? 20 years ago, race relations were much better than they are today, but then critical theory comes in and ironically creates the very angst that it claims to solve. Well, that's what happens between Muslims and the West over the past couple of centuries. So that's how modern Western and Muslim perceptions have changed over the past few hundred years. And with that in mind, let's conclude by talking about how we should think of the Crusades today. So the same year that the New York Times compared the Crusades to the Holocaust, hundreds of Protestants took part in what was called a reconciliation walk from Germany to the Holy Lands, wearing shirts that said, I apologize in Arabic. Their official statement read as follows, 900 years ago, our forefathers carried the name of Jesus Christ in battle across the Middle East. Fueled by uh, fear, greed, and hatred, the Crusaders lifted the banner of the cross above your people. On the anniversary of the First Crusade, we wish to retrace the footsteps of the Crusaders in apology for their deeds. A few years after that, in his book, Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller tells the story of a setting up of a confession booth on the campus of his super liberal university. But but get this, rather than having pagans confess their sins, the Christians will confess. And the Christians will apologize to non-Christians. For what? Well, for things like the Crusades. I remember reading that book I was about 25, I'd been a believer for like two years, and even then I thought, this sounds really strange, right? It's easy to play armchair historian, just dismiss the medieval church, just dismiss the Crusades completely. I think that's a bit arrogant, what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery. So do we therefore swing the pendulum the other way? Say, well done, good and faithful Crusaders. We applaud your efforts. We have no critiques whatsoever of the Crusades. In fact, we should support Crusades today, maybe we can go and take Canada, right? Well, that 
as appealing as that might be, that also is arrogant and unhelpful. So in the end, I think we need the very thing our culture hates, which is nuance. That takes critical thinking. It takes study. It takes energy. It takes time. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? There's food to Instagram. We got to, you know, there's virtue to signal or something like that. So, um, so let me propose a nuanced solution for how we should view the Crusades today. When we talked about just war last year, we distinguished between the criteria necessary for going to war and the criteria necessary in the midst of war. For instance, if Canada were to attack America, we might have the right to go to war with it, but we can't necessarily do whatever we want in that war. We can't nuke every city, kill every Canadian, whatever it might be. Even when you have justification for going to war, you still have to act justly in that war. So as it relates to the Crusades, I would say that in general, the Crusades met the requirements for the European powers to go to war because of Islamic provocations. However, I would say that the way in which that warfare was engaged was often unjust, certainly from a Christian perspective. Not only the atrocities, but also the motivations of many who went. At the same time, those atrocities, they need to be understood within the proper context, the context of the medieval world uh, history, a time of Genghis Khan, the, Mo the Mongol hordes, Islamic imperialism, and so forth. In that sense, the Crusades were a product of their own time. That doesn't excuse them, but it does help to explain them. They might not make sense to us, but they certainly made sense uh, to the people who lived in that particular time period. So let me end with this. This isn't in your notes. I changed it this morning. But here are four propositions that I think that we should be willing to confess as it relates to the Crusades. Number one, war and violence aren't inherently evil. There is such a concept as just war. When you really boil it down, a lot of the contemporary criticism of the Crusades is really just a veiled critique of just war theory. It's absolute pacifism in sheep's clothing. That's the first thing I think we have to recognize. War and violence aren't inherently evil. If you don't believe that, go and listen to that teaching on just war. Number two, in light of the above, Europeans were justified in defending their Byzantine neighbors and Palestinian brothers and sisters in need. Islam was constantly seeking to expand and conquer. The Turks in particular were guilty of their own atrocities and persecution, not only against Christians, but Jews and even fellow Muslims as well. That's the second thing. Third, the atrocities of the Crusades need to be understood within the milieu of medieval world history rather than anachronistically applying modern standards to pre-modern war. And then fourth, nonetheless, we can and should criticize certain aspects of the Crusades, including the muddying of the church and state and the concept of holy war as if the kingdom of God is advanced by the sword, the morality and motivations of many of the Crusaders, the theological confusion of pilgrimages and penance, and certainly the atrocities which may make sense within the context, but certainly do not reflect the kingdom which the Crusaders claimed to represent. In other words, we need to distinguish the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The Crusades make sense in one and don't in the other. So in conclusion, I don't think that we need to apologize for the Crusades. None of us were there, but neither should we be apologists for the Crusades as if there's no critique whatsoever. There were good and bad, bad motivations as with most wars, so we should seek to study and even assess them, but we should have humble hearts that seek to understand them rather than this anachronistic sort of ignorance. So I wanna recommend two books to you. Um, you have them there in your notes. The Concise History of the Crusades by Thomas F. Madden and then God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades by Rodney Stark. Those are helpful if you want a bit more nuance rather than simply circling good 
or bad. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to shoot us an email or come and chat with us. We'd, now, we'd love to, uh, to help. For now, let's pray. Father, I confess that, uh, that history is messy and, uh, and hard, but that you are good and that you only uh, do good. And, uh, and so I pray that you would help us to be humble enough to both admit where the church has erred, but also humble enough to admit our own unbiblical presuppositions and anachronistic pride, where we might read uh, modern preferences or modern presuppositions back upon something. So I pray that you would help us to have a, a transcultural morality, a biblical worldview that would be able to assess things and to, to be nuanced enough to actually be helpful. And may we have hope that one day your kingdom will come not by us taking up the sword, but rather by the sword that proceeds from the mouth of your son. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.